Welcome to the first episode of Pictures and Dialogues. My name is Tejeshwa Sharma, and I've officially entered the world of podcasting. So thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting. This is only the first episode. I have uh, many, many more to go before I can officially um, change my Instagram handle to podcaster. And also until I update my LinkedIn profile to uh, now state that I am a podcaster. So uh, this is now me, unscripted, with the microphone, and just my laptop. And I thought about different formats as to how I would go about this. And I've, I've listened to, to many, many podcasts, and I continue to listen to podcasts. And I do appreciate the different formats. And I think for me to begin with, uh, perhaps for the first couple episodes, I'm going to start with unedited episodes and unscripted. I want to see if I can test myself and also um, hopefully um, be a, um, a good podcaster and establish myself into someone who can become an authority on the subject that I will be discussing. So the subject that I have chosen and the topic um, for my podcast that I, I wanted to focus on is is films and film, specifically film criticism and film theory. And this isn't something that I just decided to do a few weeks ago or a few months ago or even a few years ago. For those who know me and who are friends with me or who are related to me will know that I can talk at length for hours um, about films and film theory and film criticism. So to begin, I guess I should give a bit of um, a background as to um, what started this. And I won't go into too much detail because I don't want this to be the focus of the episode but um, just to begin, I did start blogging and I was struck by the ability to the uh, sorry, the, the ability to share information without having essentially someone review or edit your work. And I found that um, both dangerous and liberating um, for two reasons. The first, like I said, dangerous because I could be could I could be um, putting out nonsense into the world and on the internet, and there's no one to sort of stop me before I hit publish. And um, liberating because I thought that this was the first time I could actually explore ideas and concepts without having someone who isn't necessarily um, understanding my my perspective um to 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 publish that and i think it's it's good it's both dangerous and liberating and that's the exciting thing about it is that i did that when i had started um my or at least i i, I realized the consequences of that when i when i first started my my first blog and the title of that was the republic of blogashwar and besides the absolutely silly title the themes and the the concepts and the ideas that I wanted to explore were so broad, unfocused, 
But I, I look back and I, I look at the, the posts. I've removed the website, but I saved all of the posts just to remind myself of what I had done. And I originally started with so many different ideas, such as philosophy and just putting any thought into writing and, and publishing it. And I didn't, I didn't, I think, achieve the views that I, uh, or at least the audience that I would have um, wanted, but it, it, it gave me the opportunity to, you know, ideas to paper, pen to paper, of course, in this case, I had typed everything and to, to share everything. Um, and like I said, it began, it began with philosophy and then it, it changed into films. Um, and when I mean films, I mean, I was discussing, or at least, um, writing down, um, film reviews. So critiques of, 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 um, of films and something that became more common and also more, um, recognized was my, uh, my annual top 10 list of the best films of the, the previous year. So I think I'd started this blog, like I said, in 2012, and then I, I folded the tent on it in uh, 2000 and maybe 15 or 16. And then after that, I had started something else, which I won't talk about right now, um, but something I will talk about at length um, in, in possibly a, a different episode. So with that, it was something that I noticed people began to look forward to and they didn't look forward to my other posts maybe because i wasn't providing the level of insight that was required or because i missed the mark um all the time which is completely fair and and uh, recognized but with the the top 10 list that was a a uh beginning i think of um my my audience you know that was the beginning of, of people saying you know we're looking forward to your, your next annual top 10. And of course, this is again, a post that was not peer reviewed. It was not reviewed um, by, by anyone except myself. So same concept, top 10 films. And I think I'd done it for possibly three or four years. And after that, I decided no more discussion about films. I moved my posts to not open blogging, but then to microblogging. And of course, with microblogging, you've guessed it, that's Twitter. With Twitter, you can microblog, you can post something within seconds without, of course, having someone to, to review it. And like I said at the beginning, that's both dangerous and liberating. And you really have to find the, the, the correct medium um, um, of balancing between, you know, dangerous ideas, um, or at least entertaining the idea of, um, entertaining, exploring the concepts of, of dangerous ideas and also, um, posting, um, comments that you, you think are, are, um, required. So for me, um, with, uh, with microblogging, Again, I, I began to develop 
more of, of an of an audience. And when when I say I began to develop an audience, I don't want to speak as though I'm talking about um, an audience of you know two hundred, two thousand, five thousand people. It was a smaller number than than that, but it it motivated me to to continue because I knew that um, with that recognition and with the the feedback, it was it was starting to develop, or I began to develop the concept that I could be someone with knowledge in this field. And also something that's always interested me is, is the, the, the idea of someone being an authority in the field. Now, of course, I am by no means a, an authority in, in film criticism or in film theory, um, but I do um, say that I, I, I would say that I, I have um, the ability to review a film um, by understanding both context, construct, and honestly, also what motivated me to to begin this this podcast, just as a sort of caveat here, is that I don't think a lot of people know how to review films. Now, that may be a contentious idea, but um, I stand by it because I don't think, I think with also the mass um, um, availability of films at the moment and TV series, um, the the rate at which people are consuming is far greater than their ability to actually process and also to to think about um, the films, or in in this case, I guess also TV series. I wasn't always a huge fan of of television series, but again, I'll save that for for another time. So, as I was saying, with with the with the the concept of of being an authority in in the field, this isn't something that I think I will want to become. I don't want to go to school for, for film. I don't want to, um, you know, obtain a, a master's degree in, in film and, and arts or a PhD in film. It does not interest me. For me, it's simply, um, it's a subject that I, I love so much and that I can spend hours looking into it and uh, researching that I don't think I would um, like to pursue that at the moment. I will say at the moment, um, perhaps in a few years that could change. So that's that's it in a brief. Um, I could talk about more as to why, you know, film film does interest me, but I don't want to do that. I also want the second half of this episode to um, to be more specifically about, of course, the best films of 2018. And I didn't watch every film of 2018, so it is impossible to actually create a list of all of the films of 2018 and then to establish the best ones. But um, these are the best films that I will say I have seen. We will start with that in the second half of the first episode of Pictures and Dialogues.
Welcome to the second half of the first episode of Pictures and Dialogues. Now, towards the end of the episode, I will drop some of my social media uh, contact information if you are interested in connecting, uh, asking questions, seeking recommendations, or if you are interested in also uh, joining me as a guest on on the uh, the podcast. And uh, like I said, I'm also exploring different ways of how I want uh, the format of this to be. But at the moment, it is unedited. And uh, currently, I'm also unscripted. It's just me, the microphone, and my laptop. So I want to jump right into the um, the best films that I watched of 2018. And I, I suspended the, the concept of just enumerating um, you know, the top five or the top 10 or the top 25. I uh, don't think um uh that's uh, what i wanted to uh to get out of this so but that also does not mean that i'm deferring to the idea that all films were equally great and they all deserve the, the exact same uh recognition uh well no they deserve the recognition for being made and they each have their own strengths and weaknesses that i will discuss so the first film um, that stood out to me um, significantly this year and the film that I think everyone was talking about uh, back in September um, and also uh, I think it was released on, uh, on Netflix um, at the end of November and it is of course Roma. It's Alfonso Cuaron's um, what I think critics hailed as the personal masterpiece and I have a hard time accepting that, although I can understand why they why they've uh, why they've explained it as such. And um, of course, as I'm discussing these films, just a heads up: there is possible there is a possibility that I will um, discuss the film uh, by divulging some details. So that of course means that this is a spoiler warning. So if you are not familiar with the title of the film either pause and watch the film or um, you can skip ahead and um, return to the the film uh, critique after you've watched it so this is my my warning so with with Roma it's it is uh, Alfonso's I think most personal film to date given that it's supposed to be a um, I guess a very loosely based um, autobiography of his nanny when he was being raised in Mexico in the small village of Roma. Now, if I'm not mistaken, I think Roma is actually, like I said, a small village in the city, uh, in the heart of, of Mexico City. So I, I can understand, like I said, this is, this is clearly Alfonso's most personal film to date. And it's, again, another uh, example of how the man has the absolute most um, solid grasp of the camera um, in, while he's filming and also the ability to be extraordinarily patient with how he's um, filming a scene. And every scene in this film is put together so nicely uh, the performances are just absolutely wonderful. Um, for example, consider the opening shot. The opening shot is 
not mistaken, it's approximately two to three minutes, if not longer, um, the camera facing a tiled um, floor. So it, in this case, it was it's an old the Mexican villa um, house, and it's a it's a cobblestone like driveway, um, and the the nanny is washing the the stones, but the camera remains focused on the floor, and as the camera remains focused on the floor, you see um, uh, water being poured onto the floor. And the scrubbing begins. There's a mixture of, of, of soap and, and dirt and, and water. And in the reflection is this airplane flying over. Now, I haven't looked into the making of this film, but wow, like that is that in its of itself is what made me, I think, just draw me in immediately within the first two, three minutes of, of the film. And, you know, Alfonso has done this. He's done this with, with Gravity as well. With Gravity, um, for those of you who didn't like Gravity, I'm sorry. Um, I think it's one of the best uh, films made in the past 10 years, specifically 10 years. Um, it's pretty much, in my opinion, flawless. We can debate the science afterwards, um, but that's a different story. Uh, with Gravity, the the opening of the film as well, it's uh, it opens with um, a disclaimer that uh, there's a few facts about life in space and essentially how existence in space is essentially impossible. The film opens with the 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 scenario that it's impossible to survive. So he's already set the tone that everything you're going to watch after now is going to be characters defying the impossible. It's incredibly inspiring and it's incredibly uh, brilliant that he can draw you in within seconds to minutes uh, of, of, of his film. Now, he's also made um, uh, children, children of Men, and that it's been a few years since I've watched that film, but that also had the same concept of all right, there's clearly you know a filmmaker here, and it's not just a director, we have a filmmaker here, and in fact, we have something a little bit more uh, with him. We have a magician, it seems, behind behind the camera. So, with um, with Roma now, it's the same thing, it's a, it's a quite um. It's a slow burn. It it does require patience. It's shot in black and white, um, um, or at least it was shot in color, and the film was then, um, how would you say, in, in post-production, uh, put into black and, and white. And there's not a lot of dialogue. Um, there's some unusual scenes, um, but it is something remarkable. Um, I think it also has... Um, a very difficult scene towards the end of the film that I was um, uh, gripping the the arm of my sofa just of watching it. Um, and again, I've already warned of, of spoiler uh, um, spoilers in this uh, commentary, so uh, I will talk about it now. 
the main character essentially gives birth, but the baby doesn't survive. Um, but watching that, um, I have nowhere, um, um, not even closely done justice to how difficult it is to watch that scene. Um, and there's a lot of themes in the film about class struggle and I guess just the, um, the, the feeling of liberation or at least the desire for liberation and how in some cases liberation does um, exist, but it's not possible. So there is the possibility of going somewhere, of leaving, of escaping, of attaining a new life. But in some cases, I think what the film is trying to argue is that it's impossible for some people because of perhaps the stars haven't aligned for them or perhaps because of um, social and economic reasons, they're unable to attain what they can. But the silver lining, I think, in that in that uh, in that film, is that you may not have the opportunities granted to you or the ability to to escape or to be liberated. But look closely around you, and you have so many things to to uh, complement your life with. So this nanny who now has uh, given birth um, unsuccessfully and the baby is declared dead, she at one point says, I wanted the baby dead. And that really sticks with you through the film. And, and what um, what happens um, just shortly prior to that scene where she admits that she wanted the baby dead is that she has to save um, the the children. Uh, from drowning and she risks herself but the the way in which the, the 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 scene is shot is so mesmerizing again that this is both now a compliment to to the performance of um, the main actress whose name I'm forgetting um, again I'm, I'm doing this completely unscripted um, she she has to rescue the children and like I said this was a compliment to both Alfonso's cinematographer and to Alfonso himself, and as well as to the the performances of everyone, it's shot in one bloody take. How did they do that? And I did, I will admit, I did watch um, a short video the other day of Alfonso at the Hollywood Reporter, um, the the roundtable of what they do every year now with the Hollywood Reporter, uh, where they sit down with um, filmmakers um, who made successful films um, of the year, and he admits that they'd spent more time setting up the actual shot, um, which is normally the case most of the time. Um, but they'd actually spend most of the time um, setting up the crane and the track on how the cam, how the camera was going to um, to move from left to right. So it's it's just wonderful to see that. And again, although the scene prior to that is the the birthing scene. Um, the unsuccessful birthing scene, what happens after is that she still knows and that she still believes that she can. Um, there's a reason for her to to exist. There's a reason for her to rescue these children. And if she can't give give birth to, you know, her own child, well, there's, you know, there's a way that she's going to fight for saving someone else's children, which she, um, 
she that was that was her role as as the nanny she is the protector she is the rescuer she is the caregiver in fact she has a closer relationship uh with the children than uh, the mother does and i think that's exactly what alfonso and the screenwriters wanted to do i think they wanted to demonstrate that this nanny had some sort of um angelic existence and that was it she was not supposed to to move forward she was not supposed to um you know exist in the next generation she wasn't supposed to give birth to to the child she was simply existing for those specific years for that specific family so one review that i read and i didn't really think about this until after and i'm still trying to explore and, and understand the concept of this um but apparently this was one of the best depictions of magical realism in a film that's ever been done now my only other experience with magical realism is in the in not in the film but in the novel uh the satanic verses by salman rushdie that's my only other experience with 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 magical realism and i don't know enough about it to talk about it so i will put that aside but um it's a brilliant concept if you if you think about it and if i understand it correctly i think what it what it's trying to depict is that this is the the angel the 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 sort of um i guess spiritual caretaker um that exists only for this family and only for that purpose and so that is what the uh, entire film was about uh that's you know two and a half hours of that but it is of course um a remarkable remarkable picture um one critic um i won't say who but was a little excessive in giving it i think six stars out of five um it's okay i mean it's it's clearly a five-star film but it i mean it's, it doesn't deserve six stars no film deserves six stars that's just a little silly so anyways that's roma one of the best films in my opinion and i think of what most critics would agree with is one of the best films of 2018 is it a film for everyone? No. Is it a film that's going to uh, appeal to the masses? No. Is it a film that will uh, win an Oscar? Yes. Does it matter whether it wins an Oscar? No. Uh, all right. The next film, which I actually had the pleasure of watching the world premiere of with the star in the theater and the the filmmaker and the cast and the crew uh, when I was at the Toronto International Film Festival. This is First Man starring Ryan Gosling and directed by Damien Chazelle. Damien Chazelle, I don't know what else to say about him. He is clearly emerging as one of the top filmmakers in, in Hollywood at the moment. Um, I think, in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, Christopher Nolan recognized Damien's work, saying this is the filmmaker to watch out for. He is the one to look out for. So for those of you who don't know him, he's made uh, Whiplash, was, which was a, a clear favorite uh, both with um, the critics and it was also a commercial success, uh, which did appeal to the masses. It's um, I think it was a great film in my opinion. It's 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 good. I mean it's it's a remarkable film for for uh, a debut. Um, but with one thing I would recommend when you watch that is to watch it for its editing and also the pacing. After that, he made La La Land, which was, uh, again, both a critical and a commercial success. Uh, I don't think 
Um, it was as uh, appealing to the masses as his previous film Whiplash was, but with La La Land, it definitely um, was unique, given that it was uh, it was a musical, and uh, in it's kind of odd for for someone to, to be uh, producing and directing a musical, given that we're living in the age of superheroes and and comic book um, sort of um, fanaticism. So now he's made First Man, and again, something that is out of this world. Um, And I said that for a specific reason, because First Man is a biographical um, uh, film, also known as a biopic, and it is about Neil Armstrong. So Ryan Gosling plays uh, Neil Armstrong, and it essentially documents every struggle um, the space agency NASA faced in the 60s. I think it was the 60s. Please don't um, grill me if I'm not correct on when the uh, first person uh, walked, uh, when the first person uh, was walking on the moon. Uh, I don't have uh, the notes in front of me. Um, so it's, it's, it docu- the film documents the, the entire experience of the struggles and not just the professional struggles um, of, um, you know, Neil Armstrong and um, Ryan Gosling's character, which is, which is Neil Armstrong. It documents as well the, the personal struggles as well. And I think Claire Foy is her name. And she has, um, I think she did uh, the best out of everyone in the film. And she was also nominated for an Oscar, uh, which um, uh, congratulations to her. She, she's done a, a great job in that. And, and with, with First Man, um, Ryan Gosling delivers a good performance. Um, one thing I've always noticed about him is that he's far greater at um, not emoting and not sharing his emotions in, in his characters. Um, one of his favorite films, one of my favorite films of, of his was um, Drive. Drive, and of course, um, we have, I think it was Only God Can Forgive. Very unusual film, but again, I won't get into it. With First Man, Damien Chazelle quite successfully, I think, finds at the core of the film um, a father-daughter story. And I'm not sure if this was completely why Neil Armstrong went to the moon, but the film, um, I think what it's trying to depict and what it tries to argue is that Neil Armstrong faced a lot of criticism, and I think both politically and socially, politically in the sense that uh, there were a few... um, uh, members of government that were supporting him, politicians, congressmen, um, as well as senators. But then there were also um, um, sort of the the critics um, on the other side of the fence saying that, why are we spending money to send this astronaut into space on a mission that we have never done? Uh, of course, this was at the time when um, the relations between the United States and the uh, Soviet Union were extraordinarily tense, so it became this uh, this competition of who can uh, reach the the moon first. Will it be the United States or will it be the uh, the USSR? So the film, like I said, at, at its core is a father daughter story. Um, it it seems to, um, I think, trying to espouse the idea, the feeling that Neil Armstrong made it to the moon. Because his daughter, who died earlier in the film, 
of, I think, a uh, fatal um, condition of leukemia. She is then uh, the inspiration as to why Neil continues to move forward. Why does he keep going? What motivates him? So the film does a good job of, of keeping that theme consistent. There's a few scenes in the film that are a little uh, light and, and humorous. I think it could have used a few more of those to its own advantage, um, given that you know it had such a great supporting cast as well. And the soundtrack is amazing. I, I've been listening to this um, for a few weeks now when I'm writing or when I'm, uh, when I'm doing some, some work. Uh, it's definitely one of the, the the better soundtracks of the year that will keep you focused on on what you're doing. So again, First Man, um, great film. Um, would definitely recommend it. Very long again, so it will test your patience. And I would suggest that uh, you have someone to watch this with. You may cry uh, if you do. Um, there's a good reason for you to cry. I don't think Damien was trying to um, necessarily... Um, force the script to 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 be like that. Um, I just think that the um, at, at its core, the the father daughter relationship um, is what actually kept the the film going. It's not clearly laid out as to why Neil Armstrong continues to move forward, but you see the conviction in in Ryan Gosling's eyes is that he's able to emote with his eyes and not with his expressions, why he is doing something and why he's continuing to move forward. So with First Man, I would probably not give it five stars, but I would give it four out of five. Now we have next, uh, it's the best action film of 2018, um, and it's probably one of the best action films I've ever seen. I in fact saw it twice in theaters. It stars Tom Cruise, uh, the action hero, of our of our time and uh, with the exception of Liam Neeson of course I think those two are the best action heroes at the moment and uh, this is directed by Christopher McQuarrie and he also directed the last Mission Impossible film uh, Rogue Nation but with Fallout he really really took it to the next level the action set pieces are astonishing um, the reason I saw it twice is because I wanted to watch it for the action sequences, but that doesn't go to say that the plot itself is entirely dismissible. It's nice and refreshing to see an action film that can be both um, coherent in its plot and also in its editing and execution of action sequences. Um, Tom Cruise is just a Scientologist badass, in my opinion. Um, you know, he, the fact that he's a Scientologist or that I think he's continuing to, um, uh, promote the tenets of, of Scientology has nothing to do with the film. He is an amazing action star and he needs to keep doing this until he peaks. Cause right now he is, he is making the best, uh, films that he can right now that in my opinion that I think he can, um, he's, I think what 50 in his early fifties and he has, done all of the stunts on his own in, in the film. Uh, he's also, uh, I think he did injure himself uh, severely um, in the, the running sequence in this film, which of course, what Tom Cruise uh, film is complete without a running sequence. And he's done an amazing job that uh, is really impressive. Uh, it makes me want to just be a badass like him. 
um, his his outfits in in the film are just so sharp. Um, not even sharp as though he's wearing a suit uh, and a tie and dress shoes. Um, he's very, he just looks like a very um, average, you know, he's dressed like a very average person, um, with a, the exception, of course, of his um, great hair and, and, you know, killer looks. He just looks like he's, he's dressed like an average guy with a bomber jacket, jeans, and a gray shirt, and just like, I don't know what he's wearing on shoes because they don't show that in the film, but I'm assuming he's wearing, you know, Converse or some sort of uh, runners. And he's just so perfect for these films. I can't even describe who else could possibly do this. Um, he is um, totally carrying the film, but it's also um, supported by his, you know, his usual crew and, and the great supporting cast. And in this um, film, Mission Impossible Fallout, it's actually one of the more memorable Mission Impossibles, in my opinion, and it will be. I don't know what else they can do to top something like this, and I'll give you a few reasons why. So for one, like I mentioned, the action set pieces are absolutely remarkable. Um, everything from the car chase sequence, notice that there's no music um, in the car chase sequence, um, as well as the... Um, what else do we have? We also had the the bike chase sequence in the middle of, of Paris, which is insane again. And the fact that uh, Tom Cruise actually jumped out of an airplane to perform that sequence, as well as the cameraman, and as well as um, Henry, um, uh, Mr. Superman, Henry Cavill. It's unbelievable. So the stunts, the action set pieces, the sequences... Um, as well as the the final sequence with the helicopters uh, is amazing. I mean, this is these are practical effects uh, that we don't see anymore. We're so um, I think we're so saturated. The industry right now is so saturated with um, CGI and the the um, explosion of uh, comic book films and and superhero films. It's just annoying it's not impressive anymore so when you see something like mission impossible fallout it's extraordinarily refreshing and it it it's exciting because i mean when i watch films like this i think of you know uh the the best action films of, of the 90s i think of bruce willis i think of uh you know schwarzenegger doing those those sequences in total recall and i think of um samuel l jackson and I think of Steven Seagal, and I think of Jean-Claude Van Damme, and, I, and action movies are so brilliant um, if they're done correctly. And, I mean, with, in terms of plot and in terms of characters, you have your hero. They're hero-centric films, right? You have your hero, you have your villain, you may have your um, your damsel in, in distress, although that may change now um, with, you know, the restructuring of, of male and female um uh, roles in, in, in films uh, but of course that's a subject for another time um, and then you also have a plot where the villain is essentially trying to cause havoc or take over the world or cause destruction by any you know means possible the hero has to save the day that's the action film with this um, it's just brilliant um, so for one like I said the action sequences it gave me total nostalgia of, of action films of the 90s and I thought it was absolutely marvelous. Like, I still watch some of the sequences. If I can find them on, on YouTube, if they've posted clips, 
it's brilliant. And I've watched the editing and I've watched them, um, you know, uh, not second by second, but in, in intervals in the scene and thinking about the camera work. Like I've, I've watched the, the, the car chase sequence with the, um, uh, with the motorbike and Tom Cruise is now carrying uh, uh, the villain from, from uh, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation in the passenger seat, but he has a bag or a sack over his head so he can't see anything. And Tom Cruise has to drive around and navigate through the streets um, of Paris and escape uh, someone who's trying to assassinate uh, the villain, the, the older villain in, in the, uh, the passenger seat. There's this one sequence where he's driving and he has to go through a small... Um, I would say a little alley of uh, like cafes in, in Paris, but the camera jumps from outside. So they clearly had, you know, some sort of uh, multi-camera setup here where they had a camera inside the cafe and on the outside, of course. And it, it shows a different, it, it develops a, a dimension of uh, a, like a, a more depth into the, the, the shot. So it's not just shot for a, a single take shot or necessarily a, a one camera shot from uh, Tom Cruise's perspective or from the, the bike's perspective. It's shot also from what are the people seeing, and it's just brilliant. So, again, I absolutely loved Mission Impossible Fallout. I, like I said, watched it twice, and I will probably watch it again when it comes out on, uh, on Blu-ray. The second reason why I think this is also a great film is because, and why it's more memorable than the other Mission Impossible uh, films is because from what I understand and from what I've, I've seen, this is the first Mission Impossible where I've seen um, um, Ethan Hunt's character demonstrate emotion and humanity. And he has a clear um, new emotion or new feeling that he is somewhat evaluating the risks of his behavior now. And not just his behavior, but also the, the consequences of saving the world you know you're saving the world and you're also going to have to possibly risk a few casualties in pursuit of saving the world so it was a more pragmatic uh ethan hunt there's one sequence um where he's um he's busted you know there's uh there's a cop and she says freeze he gets the officer to then uh uh call um for backup for he, he, he assists the officer to dispatch backup. And in that, it's just one of the, the few scenes that are, in the, that are in the film that demonstrate a, a different side and it develops that, that character of Ethan Hunt. The first scene, um, which I thought was, um, it sort of really struck me um, when, I, when I watched it the first time, the scene where he is listening to the plot uh, on how they're supposed to um, think, get that same villain that I was referring to. I don't have the name on me at the moment, but the same villain that I was referring to previously from the, the passenger uh, in, in the car that he's driving, uh, they have to extract him from the uh, authorities of France. Um, so he does the impossible, you know, of course, Mission Impossible, um, but he, he listens to the plan. That's not his. Usually it's his idea. Or Benji's idea, he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't. Uh, you know, think about the consequences. But in this sequence, I love what Christopher McQuarrie did. The screenwriters did. It was absolutely perfect. They did a um, 
a sequence in what in sorry in 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 which what would this look like? So this is very common in films where they'll um, they'll execute a, a scene, um, but it it simply turns out that this is just what the character was imagining what would happen, and in that after it ends, he says, um, "So that's the plan. We just kill them all." So with that, he sort of says, "No, this is wrong. I'm 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 supposed to be the good guy. I'm not supposed to be." killing someone in order to serve my own interests or the interests of my nation. So, and the way that scene unfolds with a small violin playing in the background, what actually, what it reminded me of, um, and what I would actually compare this entire film to, um, in terms of uh, equivalence in a series, this is the, this is the dark night of the Mission Impossible film series, hands down, it, it is the it is the most um, um, perfectly executed and um, developed, and as well as insightful um, plot characters uh, that I've seen in any of the Mission Impossibles. So honestly, I don't know how they're going to top this. Good luck. I don't think they're going to be doing another Mission Impossible film for some time now, but. Um, they need to continue to build on, I think, the character of Ethan Hunt and throw in an even, an even uh, more challenging villain. You know, throw in someone who, who probably is um, like Ethan Hunt, but he was even better, but has, I don't know, similar to uh, um, uh, perhaps uh, having the same sort of ideas of, of wanting to serve the interests of their own nation or their own people, but um, also having more of a pragmatic uh, view. So next we have uh, an Indian film, and the name of this film is Razi, and this is directed by Meghna Guzar, and I was lucky enough to catch this in theaters here in Ottawa. Uh, it stars Alia Bhatt and also Vicky Koshal, and the film is about a, uh, a spy an Indian spy who gets married into a um, uh, Pakistani um, uh, family and whose family is also involved um, quite highly in military and espionage. She plays a character who infiltrates um, the, uh, the, uh, the family in order to, to become a spy. And of course, you can imagine the, um, the plot, how it unfolds after that. So this is Alia Bhatt films that she's done to date. I haven't caught her in uh, her other films in uh, such as Highway, or um, I think she she did some other work that was impressive. But I, I'm not uh, I'm blanking on on the the titles at the moment. With this film, she has to serve the interests of her own nation, nation, and she also has to develop. Um, Sort of this, um, I guess we can call it a skill to to put um, things that she would not necessarily do before ahead of uh, her her uh, her interests. So with uh, with Razi, we have um, Alia Butts. Um, I think one of her her best performances now till uh, till date. So um, she does a great job and so does Vicky Koshal as well and as well as the supporting cast but um, the film itself is just 
very well done. It's incredibly intense. Um, you can imagine you're an Indian spy living in Pakistan with a high-ranking uh, military uh, family. And of course, you're not just there on vacation. You're required to um, assume the role of a uh, new lifestyle. And in pursuit of that, Alia Bhatt's character goes through some rigorous training at the beginning of the film. And finally, in order to satisfy her father and as well as her uh, country, she uh, agrees to, to do this. And what follows, of course, is um, consequential, um, puts her life at risk. And, of course, she has to develop um, a, um, a sort of coarse um, feeling of hurting anyone else who gets in her way. And, of course, she can't uh, divulge her identity. She can't divulge where she's from uh, because that is the whole point of the film. She plays a spy. So this was a great film. The music is wonderful. Uh, the film jumps right into the subject. That doesn't waste any time. Again, this is one of those rare films that has come out of Hindi cinema in 2018 that has, um, I think, really struck a chord with, with everyone. And they're just impressed with how well a film like this um, can be can be done. It's, uh, it's 2018. We're tired of seeing films about um, weddings and the, the class system. Those are relevant, but I'm just saying we're tired of, of seeing those. So this has done something very different. And Vicky Goshal is a great actor. He's he's new, but he's really doing well. He's he's um, I think come from outside of the industry, and really entered in and, and ascended to the top quite fast. So uh, very good job to to him. And uh, I would definitely recommend this film, even if you're not interested in the traditional concepts or stereotypes of, of Hindi cinema and Bollywood. This is definitely different. Uh, you will enjoy it. It's extraordinarily intense, suspenseful. And uh, if, you, if you're a fan of uh, political thrillers and uh, the, the tense relations between India and Pakistan um, during the war, uh, this will be very, um, I think, enlightening and definitely a pleasurable watch for you. One of the films that really surprised me this year was an animated film. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. This was directed by uh, three people. Rodney Rotham, Peter Ramsey, and Bob Persichetti. Persichetti. They've done a great job of um, really convincing people that Marvel is not the sole proprietor um, of comic book movies and that they can make an extraordinarily competent coherent and impressive technically impressive and visually uh, brilliant uh, film spider-man into the spider-verse is hands down the most surprising and pleasantly surprising film of 2018 i would definitely recommend watching it i decided to pair this with uh, black panther as well pair in the sense that they're both comic book films uh, but of course, they have nothing to do with one another. So with Black Panther as well, we have Ryan Coogler, um, who you know made um, uh, Creed, 
for example, who has done an extraordinarily um, phenomenal job with this film. The reason I've paired them together is because they both have a theme that um, is quite similar. It's not the theme of, of assuming the role of becoming a, a comic book character. In fact, quite the contrary. Uh, with Black Panther, it's um, the, uh, the Black Panther has to... Um, the Black Panther knows he's Black Panther, but he has to... He has to deserve or um, achieve the level of become of of earning the title of becoming a Black Panther. Everyone knows he's a Black Panther. His father has died in an explosion in the UN, and he is next to assume the role of uh, king and leader of of uh, the people of Wakanda. But what's different here is that he has not earned the title yet. So the film is now. Um, a demonstration of how he has to uh, achieve and earn the title of becoming the Black Panther. And we have a great villain in this film as well. Uh, Michael B. Jordan um, plays uh, the villain who tries to subvert the Black Panther um, from becoming the Black Panther. Um, it's but what, what, what really struck me with this film and the theme that I'm going to describe that's very similar to Spider-Man and the Spider-Verse is that there's a dream sequence in Black Panther where he has to um, undergo before uh, becoming king of Wakanda. He has to have um, his final meeting with his father and he essentially tells his father that he's not ready. He's not ready to, to govern the people of Wakanda and he's not ready to, to lead. He's not ready to live without his father. And his father says, that's foolish. I've prepared you to become king. I've prepared you. And if you're not prepared and if you don't think you're prepared, then I have failed as a father or as a parent. The similar theme in Spider-Man to the Spider-Verse is that, uh, uh, in this case, uh, it's, it's Peter Parker um, or whichever um, Spider-Man um, that's on the, the main plot because there's multiple Spider-Mans um, or Spider-Men in this film, and for those of you who haven't watched it, you have no idea what I'm talking about, but you will understand the theme, is that Peter Parker realizes that he cannot achieve uh, being or um, admitting that he is Spider-Man with the death of um, the previous Spider-Man. Now, it may not make too much sense um, what I'm saying if, if you haven't seen, seen the film, but the theme here is that how does someone um, step forward and become what they can uh, because they've lost they've lost the mentor, they've lost the guidance, they've lost the person who was before them. Um, they've lost the person who was essentially the captain of, sh of the ship, but the captain is now gone, and they are now uh, the next person in the queue to, to become the leader. How do they lead? So that is the theme. How do I do this? How do I become Spider-Man? How do I become Black Panther without you, without the leader, without the original uh, person who was sitting in that chair, who was who was governing, who was you know saving people from uh, from from bills and and stuff? So that's the theme. Um, that's quite 
uh, similar in terms of both, in terms of um, how does the hero assume now the responsibility of becoming the hero and what kind of hero is he going to be? So for those of you who've seen the, the first Spider-Man that came out, Sam Raimi's uh, 2003 Spider-Man with um, uh, Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst, uh, the 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 line in that film that really got made fun of, but that's still so memorable, is with great power comes great responsibility, and with responsibility now it's that's it, right? You're the hero. You have to be responsible. What are you going to do? And so both films explore this the themes and, and the concept of um, what it takes to be not only just a superhero, but um, also a, um, um, a responsible superhero and to make sure that you don't become uh, a villain. I would say Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse does that a bit more than, than Black Panther. There was probably um, more of a uh, influence from the producers to keep it a little uh, less um, philosophical and more uh, into the characters, into themes and visual effects of, of Wakanda. But nonetheless, it's still... Um, hits you know the ball out of the park and wow what a soundtrack what an inspiring film like when that film ended I stood up and I clapped for like 20 minutes a uh, bit of an exaggeration but that's um, it's wonderful and I've seen it twice the the theme the action sequences performances um, as well as uh, the uh, the CGI everything is just absolutely wonderful next we have hereditary hereditary wow this is a super awesome film. It's actually a film that I don't think we will truly, truly appreciate um, until probably the next couple years. It's um, it's something that we're not ready for, that we weren't ready for. It, um, like the horror genre, um, over the past couple of years has just been getting better and better. Um, we saw a dip in, in horror after the 90s after the the um, the evident uh, slasher films of the 80s and the 90s, the John Carpenter films, and as well as the Wes Anderson films, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, film series. After that, we saw a dip in um, quality, and then we got to the Rob Zombie horror films, and the Halloween series just got worse, um, and slasher films, in my opinion, um, ended. There were a few films that came out in the early 2000s and then mid uh, 2000s that um, tried to resurrect slasher films. We had uh, um, we had a remake of Funny People, and then we also had the um, the Strangers. So the three you know, unusual people that show up at the uh, the door. Now with the the genre of of film uh, of horror films, we've we've seen such an impressive. Um, uh, increase of the quality of the types of horror and that's because they're they're beginning to develop uh different um how would i say concepts of 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 the genre and they're starting to tie them into reality for example just a few years ago we had a very controversial uh film not in its subject but in its execution uh, it was called it follows and that was i think one of the that stood out it has an absolutely atrocious third act but the the concept of the film was just brilliant so with this film now hereditary it's 
part of the same, you know, new wave of, of horror films. And with Hereditary, it is, in my opinion, uh, an example of a five-star film. Now, the performances are um, extraordinarily convincing. Uh, the, the performances from all actors and actresses, and I won't name all of them, A, because I don't have them in front of me, and B, because um, there's too many. Every performance in this film is is perfect. Uh, it's so disturbing and unnerving that I actually uh, was gripping the 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 arm of my chair in in the theater as well, and I'm one to turn away from from horror films whenever there's some sort of satanic scene or a demonic scene. I, I don't um, generally uh, enjoy those, but with um, with this, I, I I was genuinely disturbed. And, and one thing I want to highlight about this film, uh, in addition to its performances, is the tone. The tone is what makes the film so convincingly uh, terrifying. I would definitely recommend this. Uh, it's if if you're faint of heart, or if you don't like, um, not even just psychologically disturbing, but uh, unnerving films. This is definitely going to uh, to uh, I don't want to say ruin you, but it will it will give you a little bit of a fright, uh, and you won't be able to fall asleep. Uh, also, one other thing to notice in this film is the lighting and the cinematography and the um, the visuals. So one scene in particular that, that just drives me nuts and still continues to drive me nuts, uh, well, two actually. One is when towards the beginning of the film, after the funeral of the, the grandmother, uh, she... Um, uh, the, the grandmother's daughter, who, who I think is uh, upstairs in, in her bedroom... Uh, decides to turn a light off and there's this not, I don't want to say a, it's, it's a silhouette of the grandmother and it's it's terrifying to see that because we just escaped the previous scene is that we just left from you know her funeral turn off the light and of course what I'm describing sounds as though it would exist in you know every horror film but watch this and look at the lighting She's she's essentially looking into the camera and smiling, and it's just completely terrifying. I think the reason that it's so terrifying is because it's A, unexpected, uh, and also B, because usually when stuff like this happens in, in horror films, you don't uh, expect it to happen A, towards the beginning of the film, and B, in a scene where there was not really a reason for it to happen. So it would only happen if, for example, the director the film was trying to uh you know provide a jump scare but this it's very subtle it, it happens the light is turned off and you know the woman turns back and she sees the silhouette face and she just carries on um she she sees it she's a little disturbed but then when she turns the light back on it's just um it's just sort of objects in the dark that seem to have resembled her grand her, her mother uh, another scene um in the film that is disturbing although i could really talk about this in, i think one whole episode uh, is when the the son is sleeping, and the camera sort of um, uh, it, it it pans out, and what you see in the top corner is again another silhouette image of now the this is much later in the film of her daughter, just you know she's she's sitting in the 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 corner of the top she's sitting in the top of the ceiling in the corner, 
but sort of like you know how Spider-Man would would sit there with her arms against the wall and her legs against the wall. And again, the camera is this is what I think makes the film so great is that the camera doesn't force these these images. It's just the camera is there. It's placed in the room. And now what we're seeing is we're seeing this character in in trouble or seeing this character who's you know, in, in peril at the moment, and he, they don't know that, but we can see it. And that is, in what, in what my opinion, is very successful uh, to sort of um, um, demonstrate terror and, and horror. So those are very, so the, those are two of the very scary scenes in, in the film, and that have still, I still see them. When I turn the lights off, I can still see those scenes. So I would definitely recommend this film if you are a fan of horror films and the film was directed um by Ari Aster which is impressively a debut film so again I don't think this will be recognized by the academy um at the uh, the Oscar this film will definitely mark my words this film will be recognized in the next 10 to 20 years we'll look back and say why did this film not deserve the attention that it did at the time one more film that I'm going to talk about now Probably the last film uh, before I end the first episode is Andhadhun, a Hindi film. And again, this is uh, similar to Razi, a very unusual film that, and unusual in the sense that it's not a mainstream cinema, but 2018 for, for Hindi cinema was uh, the year of film for non mainstream cinema. So what we witnessed, I would say, it used to be called parallel cinema or indie cinema, but now I think this is becoming uh, or will become uh, a mainstream cinema in the, in the next couple of years, but at the moment we'll call it um, uh, independent cinema. This film uh, was one of the most successfully uh, you know, um, accomplished films of, of 2018, both commercially and critically, uh, in addition to the one I'd mentioned earlier, uh, Razi. So with Andhadun, we have um, uh, filmmaker Sriram Raghavan, and it stars Ayushman Khurana and uh, actress uh, Radhika Apte. It, it, it probably doesn't deserve to be on, on the best films um, for you know the, the general consensus out of all of the films that came out last year. But I thought I would recognize it because this is a film that has really taken the step forward with uh, thrillers and just some some sort of great technical achievements in cinema that I think a lot of other films in, in Hindi um, cinema have not done recently. So with Andadun here, we have a sort of um, a caper, you know, Guy Ritchie, Quentin Tarantino-like film. And I think Sriram Raghavan is known to make films like this. He's made uh, Johnny Gadar, exact same theme or style, or um, direction or execution begins with the premise, you know, a who done it thriller, who committed the murder, um, who stole the money, and what I love about it is that none of the characters in any of his films are completely uh, one-sided. Everyone is hiding something, and whether it's um, positive or whether it has some sort of um, um, consequence for the character, there's always something that the audience does not know because of the editing of the film. And he really brilliantly 
um, does that, I think, quite successfully this time out of all the films that he's he's made in, over the past couple of years. So with Andadun, um, it's uh, the story of a, uh, a blind uh, pianist who gets uh, entangled and engulfed in this um, this uh, this crime scene, and what follows after is how he has to now untangle himself out of the crime. Um, but the twist of the story is that he's blind, and so uh, what happens is that he actually, I'm going to air quotes this, witnesses a murder. But the the premise of the film is that how can a blind man witness a murder? Uh, was he witness? Was he um, was he was he blind? What's what's going on here? So it turns out that he's not actually blind. He is a pianist. He is an artist. For some reason, he decides to um, pretend that he is blind for creative motives and it's it's sort of that case of what happens after is that the audience knows something but the characters don't um you know dramatic dramatic irony i think is the term and then what happens after is the characters begin to investigate uh other characters and they realize things that aren't true but then they start investigating other things about that character that aren't true. so what happens is that you know, you have a very simple story, which then becomes complicated, and then which then becomes uh, tangled. And the rest of the film, the second half, um, is to untangle how each character is going to escape um, with the least amount of damage. And the soundtrack itself also by uh, uh, Amit Trivedi is just great, suits the film, uh, theme of piano, um, one thing I really liked about this as well is that it wasn't, it wasn't, um, afraid to explore some dangerous, uh, concepts and Dabu's performance in this film is also just remarkable. Um, she's probably done, I think the best job, uh, out of everyone in the, uh, in the whole, in the whole film. Uh, the second half does lag a little bit towards the end and it gets a little, um, you know, when, when there's so many twists and turns, uh, it begins to lose its its effect. It's, you know, it's similar to when um, there's too much. Um, it seems as though that the director was trying slightly a little too hard to impress with the twists, the plot twists, and the, this, the, um, the swerving of how far he can go with, you know, exaggerating that maybe, you know, was he blind, was he not blind? What I think saves the film in the the second half, and, and actually what saves the film uh, at the end, is that it 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 leaves the the viewer with questioning: Wait, was he actually blind, or was he not blind? Was he pretending, or was he actually blind, or was he partially blind? And so I've watched a few uh, YouTube videos about the um, you know the analysis of the film, and there's a few what I think they call Easter eggs, you know, uh, throughout the film. And he, 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 being the director, wants the viewer to uh, realize uh, on their own whether or not he was actually blind. And he wants the audience to, uh, you know, be able to discern whether um, what he was doing was for creative purposes or was it for 
um, was he was he motivated for for some other reason? So as a whole, I think that is really what saves the film. If it had continued to uh, swerve in directions where he wasn't sure where it was going, I think it would have been uh, quite fatal to the narrative and quite fatal to the overall impact of what he he would have wanted to 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 have um, to have achieved. So with that, again, um, overall though, it's it's truly a unique film. With that being said, this was uh, the first episode of Pictures and Dialogues. I don't think I discussed uh, approximately eight or nine or, or ten films that I thought were um, um, outstanding of, of 2018. There were a few honorable mentions that I did want to uh, talk about, um, two in particular, and one that I haven't watched but I've heard great things about. So the first two um, that I did watch, first one was Phantom Thread. Uh, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, it's a period piece. Um, I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson, you know what you're getting yourself into. It's going to be unusual, and it's going to be um, flawless. The film just didn't work for me in terms of um, being memorable. Uh, maybe there's something I missed. Uh, and then after that, I watched, um, not immediately after, but another film that I, I thought deserved an honorable mention was uh, Annihilation. Very, very, um, in my opinion, underrated film of 2018. Uh, it's a sci-fi film. Um, it stars Natalie Portman, and it's directed by Alex Garland. And I really enjoyed um, the film uh, thoroughly. Um, it just didn't work for me um, in terms of what I was uh, looking for, in terms of just preference. I do think objectively, though, it is a um, it is a very well-made film. Um, the, the monsters in the film are impressive uh, visually. Uh, technically, the, the, the film is um, sharp. The performances are sharp. And finally, I think that is it. I think there's... Um, I think there's no more films. There was another one that I... Uh, I've heard very good things about, but I have not had a chance to uh, to watch it. And the title of the film is called "You Were Never Really Here," starring Joaquin Phoenix. And I've heard it's um, I've heard it's great. I can't speak about it because I haven't seen it. But maybe when I watch it, I will uh, maybe do a short episode about that uh, in the uh, coming weeks. So uh, thank you for joining me. Like I said, I'm, I'm going to continue to explore uh, formatting and get some feedback. So if you are interested in connecting with me on, on social media, you can find me on Twitter, and that's uh, at thejshore underscore underscore T-E-J-E-S-H-W-A-R underscore underscore. And you can also find me on Instagram. My uh, Instagram um, username is at TJ, the letters T and J dot S-H-A-R. MA. And uh, again, thank you for joining me. Please do stay tuned for episode two, which I hope will uh, be ready in the next few weeks. Thank you.